Hi, I'm Jennifer Zollett. And I'm Larkin Bell. Welcome to our podcast, A Female Lens. Welcome back. Another week. Another, Another with it. <laughs> Women in film in the news. I love Ooh. that. I think we need a little let's song. Clip, let's clip that Maybe out. Maybe not that we'll one. That's our, our <laughs> intro each time. And uh, we're discussing TV directors this week. Um, the DGA released a report saying that female and minority TV directors have reached a milestone. This year, for the first time ever, they directed half of all episodic TV shows. Yeah. Huzzah. Ooh. <laughs> That's a lot of TV. Basically, the report examined over 4,300 episodes, oh which is insane, and also probably the amount of episodes on my to-watch list. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like it. Truly. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is, I think this is a big cause for celebration. Yeah. Usually, the stats are not so exciting, so yeah. it's nice to have a report that's like, oh, look, change is actually happening, and we're moving in a forward direction. Totally. And I think it's also building on progress because um, that 50% stat was both for female and minority TV directors. Mm -hmm. Combined? Combined. That particular stat. And five years ago, it was at 21%. Wow. So that's That's huge huge progress that's been made. And last year was Mm 42.5%. Now we're at 50%. So I think that at least shows that it's progress that's been built upon and can Mm -hmm. hopefully last Whereas, yeah. like, some other data points I feel like we hear about are so kind of all over the place. Right. So really varies year by year. Yeah. So an interesting data point in the report was that the percentage of episodes directed by women grew to a record 31%, which has doubled in the last five years, which I feel like that's, again, huge. Huge. It's really significant. And for directors of color, it rose to a new high of 27%. Again, huge growth. Yeah. Yay. But also still unfortunate that um, women and people of color are all grouped into one like, half. Like yeah, they get half minority. of the percentage yeah. of, of all the television shows and then the other half are white men still. Yeah. Right. Which at least it's it's growing significantly, but mm-hmm. it's still like, oh yeah, 50% of all <laughs> it's TV like shows the- are still directed by <laughs> white men. The comparison point. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. we're saying 50% of all television was directed by non-white men uh-huh. right as yeah. like a yeah. collective yeah so, that is just mind-blowing mm-hmm. it's still significant but yes. yeah. yeah when you break down the yeah the more specific the rest yeah. yeah it's also interesting kind of to think about i mean i don't have any data on this but it's like why is this change occurring is it because there are more diverse stories being told and being picked up and, and going to series and running longer do you think it's because more people in power are looking for this I mean, it's probably a mixture of everything, obviously, yeah. but it is interesting that such substantial change has been made mm-hmm. um, and that it's lasting. Yeah. I, I think it's also like just the timeline of television. There are more opportunities. Like mm-hmm. there, if there's 4,000 yeah. episodes that they're examining, like that's a lot of opportunities that's true. Yeah. Um, over the course of a year. Whereas in film, it, there's just not as many films made at that level that the level of television, you know, we're making this level of television at. And so I think, yeah, in some ways there's just more room for change to happen or 
I mean, I think there's room in film, but I, it seems a little easier perhaps in television yeah. to make D- that change. Digging yeah. into that, um, basically the report says that a good part of this surge in employment mm-hmm. was with first-time directors. Right. And basically in the 2018-2019 season, um, the percentage of those jobs that were first-time directing gigs basically going to women was a new record. Um which was 49% um, of those hires, which is, that's kind of what we've been talking about a lot as well in this mm-hmm. in this segment where it is those first-time opportunities and those opportunities to break in that do matter. Right. And while that's been promising, another part of the report said that, like, some of the drop-off is mm-hmm. when, like, these directors that get those opportunities don't get follow-up opportunities to that. Right. And the other side of that whole thing is that... Um, a little more than half of those first-time directing gigs jobs went to cast and crew members that were already affiliated with those shows, Mm -hmm. which the DGA calls, quote-unquote, perk hiring. (laughs) Um, So that just means they're not hiring anybody outside of their show. So it's like hiring an actor or somebody who's been on the show for a long time and saying, like, hey, do you want to direct this episode? So they are getting that experience and getting that first-time directing gig, but... They're, the show isn't actively seeking directors outside of it to bring in um, to give those jobs to, which is just yeah, kind of an interesting other side of the coin here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 good for the numbers, but mm-hmm. it's less of a it's less indicative that there's significant or mm-hmm. potentially like important change being made in the practice of mm-hmm. of giving these opportunities to to people who don't right. already who don't already have a foot in the door or a role on a show or whatever the connection is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, on one hand, that could be great if it's somebody who's on the show who they, uh, that's their dream goal is to become a director and they've really been, you know, working on this show to then hopefully direct eventually and direct some episodes and then get on other shows and direct. And, you know, as an actor, like it, it's also interesting as an actor to, um, be able to direct an episode and you've been on this show for so long you know exactly how it runs you know how to basically direct an episode but yeah it's it's just kind of keeping it within the family and not like I don't know if it's really helping anybody's career exactly if if those are the people that are getting those opportunities versus somebody from the outside who's trying to break in to just direct and that's their goal and needs those opportunities to then get to the next Mm -hmm. level yeah Mm -hmm. it is interesting yeah. I will say maybe one other small benefit kind of to this perk hiring is at least the representation factor is still in place, right? Like if you have, um, even if it is somebody who's already involved with the production, but if it's a woman or person mm-hmm. of color, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, marginalized perspective, they're still getting to have their influence on this creative work Mm -hmm. that then audiences will see and that it's more of a subtle influence you know in the industry but I feel like we could at least acknowledge that um we'll take what we yeah 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 Yeah, Yeah. that's a good point it's interesting yeah I feel like the report is encouraging and we're getting a lot of this info from that report and also Mm -hmm. from a deadline article that talks about the report um we'll link to it in show notes but yeah, I feel like it is showing us encouraging progress, but it is like, okay, is this lasting progress? Because cool that we're getting these first-time opportunities. Where does that go down the line? And that's kind of what, you know, we're, we've been examining as well. Mm-hmm. How does that yeah. translate? Yeah, so we're excited about the report. 
interested to see how it goes. Um, you know, moving forward from this year, obviously. Be cool if we could double this percentage by next year. <laughs> that would be awesome. That. <laughs> Just take over. Yeah. Um, but we are here for, yeah, different perspectives in the TV directing sphere. Mm. Uh, Elise, I know yeah. that you are a big Star Wars fan. I am. <laughs> <laughs> and we saw some, some cool things about... Um, female directors in the Star Wars arena. Yeah. So, can you share? Yes, of course. Um, just a l- little bit of fun news. Um, one of the recent episodes of the TV show The Mandalorian, mm-hmm. which is currently airing on Disney Plus, <laughs> um, was directed by Deborah Chow. And this was actually the very first time a woman has directed any live action Star Wars piece of film that is truly mind-boggling wow. that wasn't very articulate but no but we got the, the, yeah. the uh, gravity <laughs> so the, the first time a woman has directed basically anything live action in the star wars franchise wow. um so that was groundbreaking it's like a little thing tv show no, whatever it's a big but thing kind of cool mean, no, i mean i feel like i've been hearing about the man yeah. and everywhere yeah also baby yoda is baby literally obsessed. everywhere people are obsessed wow. those yeah. memes it's just, i saw one with the like public library card and <laughs> that, that really resonated oh with me gosh. Um, so that's cool. And then, uh, relatedly, the new feature film, episode nine, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. Is that I, the one coming out this month? It's the one coming out this month. Okay. The, the big one. Got it. Um, Star Wars fans know. <laughs> is there a Star Wars film it's, that comes out every month now? That's honestly what it feels, it feels like. like. It. Yeah. No, this is going to be the end of the, um, third trilogy that's of the I main franchise. That's what I keep hearing. Franchise. And I'm like, they're going to keep going though no right? they will keep making this more is just Star Wars the third films. trilogy though there will be a fourth trilogy correct uh there will be other trilogies uh-huh. so this is kind of like they're wrapping up what george lucas's idea was from the hmm. beginning or at some point earlier on like he was like i want these three i want these prequels and yeah. now i want these other three even though he's not he doesn't have ownership over it anymore anyway so huh. the second unit director of star wars episode nine is going to be the first african-american woman to direct a star wars anything whoa so and her name is victoria mahoney um yeah so 42 years into the franchise oh my gosh <laughs> we've got a couple women at the helm oh, yay shouts out to our star wars women yeah <laughs> a good fight. yeah Seriously. princess leia would be proud um mm. on that note yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah, wow. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for sharing that yeah. tidbit. That was fascinating mm-hmm. and intriguing. Better late than never, I guess. There we go. Yeah. Um, cool. So that's all we have for Women in Film the News this week. Um, listeners, email us. We want to hear what your thoughts are on, um, on this topic, any topic, or any topic that you would like to hear about. Please let us know. We want to know. Um, also, you can go to our website and sign up for our email newsletter. We will send out updates, keep you posted on what's going on in AFL land, and uh, we'd love for you to, to be a part. Join in. Get involved. Email us at afemalelens at gmail.com, and our website is afemalelens.com. And there we go. Larkin's always got the info. And now, here's our interview with Samantha McIntyre. Samantha is a writer and actress from Dallas, Texas, where she received an MFA in acting from SMU. She performed and produced theater in Los Angeles and Dallas before starting to write for film and TV. She wrote Netflix's Unicorn Store, which was directed by Brie Larson. Additionally, she has written on HBO's Bored to Death, FX's Married, and TBS's People of Earth, and has written pilots for ABC and CW. 
She is currently supervising producer on NBC's upcoming musical dramedy, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Enjoy! Well, Samantha, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. Great. So we always start at the beginning. You earn your living as a writer now, but you first started out in acting. You got your MFA in acting from Southern Methodist University, then moved to LA to be an actor. What was your journey like in acting and how did it lead to becoming a writer? Well, they are directly related because it was the fact that my soul was being crushed as an actor (laughs) that led me to to think, is there anything else I can do to be making money? Um, No, I love, love, love theater, love acting, like just feel like I discovered it late. Like I started doing theater in high school, not, not, not even high school in college. And then I was like, I should go to grad school. Cause this is like a new thing for me. And I want to like take this seriously. And I want to be like a trained classical actor. And then when that was over, I had zero desire to move to New York city because it's so cold. That's really like the entire motivation there for choosing LA over New York. Um, so I was like, Oh, I'll just come to LA and probably become a sitcom star in like eight to 12 months (laughs) like I'm sure that'll happen quickly um but it didn't I just like auditioned and auditioned for like around I had this office job and I auditioned around like five years I would say before I thought oh this is killing me I mean I still wanted to act but I didn't want to be auditioning all the time and not making a living at it and started to become panicked that like my day job office job was going to become my actual like life job uh so my boyfriend at the time who is now my husband uh was an aspiring like television writer and I feel like that planted the even the idea like it just had never occurred to me like I'm a huge television lover and a movie lover and I feel like I never thought like who's writing that stuff and then I was like oh maybe I could write something so I tried to, and then that took off so much faster than the acting part did. Um, and I think initially it was like, ooh, how can I turn the writing thing to get back into acting? Like, I'll write my own stuff, which is so much more prevalent now. I feel like when I moved to L.A., that was a little more, like, not a radical idea, but there weren't that many people doing that. So I wish I, wish I had had made my own stuff when I was that young, like when I first came to LA, um, just like write my own things to be in instead of as an actor feeling like I'm just waiting around for like other people to give me a part in something. And so with writing, it felt like, oh, I had more control. I'm not sure that I really did. It just felt like I did. (laughs) Like, oh, I could just write something today. I don't need to like wait for someone to put me in like uh, their project, you know? I mean, you could go into the bathroom and do a monologue in the mirror. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to, you know. But no, could, yeah. You could, but no one is paying you for yeah. that. So, yeah, I just thought I would try writing. And then to my delight, uh, I liked it um, a lot. So it didn't feel like, oh, this is a horrible, like, consolation prize job it was like oh no this is like a super fun awesome job that I wasn't thinking about because I was so focused on just acting did yeah. I answer the question I don't even remember yeah. the question at no, yeah point. no <laughs> yeah. I'm curious because I think like a lot of people in like a creative field do change paths yeah and did you feel like a part of like you like that there was a changing of your identity from going from like acting to writing like you're not 
you would identify more as a writer? Was that an interesting process or it just felt natural? And I, you know what, that it has been interesting because I feel like deep down inside, I am an actor (laughs) that I still am or like I still have that secret desire and it's kind of not cool to have that desire like people kind of roll their eyes a little bit when like a someone who who makes a living as like a writer or like a director or something else when they're like everybody I want to act or I'm going to put myself in my project that people are kind of rolling their eyes like oh everyone wants to be an actor and I want to be like no that's the thing I was trying to do first like I have I went to like grad school and I tried really hard to do that thing you know so I feel like uh, like it's almost embarrassing to still want to do it a little bit, but um, it's so I think it's super helpful for writers to have any whether you're a good actor or not a good actor, but to have any kind of acting experience. And I feel like it's to me like I can't imagine writing dialogue without having like acting it out if that makes sense like I feel like I'm just thinking all the time like how would the sound with the actor and does this sound natural and would a person say this if I was an actor would I be excited about this line or like oh this person doesn't have anything fun to say that actor is going to be disappointed like I feel like I'm thinking about it a lot from the actor's point of view and like wish which um lines I would be most excited to say but yes I have an I have this identity problem (laughs) (laughs) So we read that you wrote your first pilot at your office day job and then applied for the Warner Brothers workshop uh, and you were accepted. We have two questions. What was your pilot about and what was your day job? Well, the job was I was a at an entertainment PR firm in West L.A. I was the what they called first they called the clipper, which was I clipped magazine articles from publications, newspapers, magazines, and websites for any of their clients that got like a hit. And they mostly did home video, like studio home video releases. So like if a Fox movie was coming out on DVD and Entertainment Weekly did like a little blurb, like top five DVDs of the summer, then I was the one photocopying that article and making it look all pretty with like a masthead and stuff. Later, after I'd been there a couple years, they uh, gave me a new title, exact same job, but I was now the article display artist. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the, that's the job that I think um, Brie Larson's character has in Unicorn Store. Like in my mind, she's photocopying all the time because she's just clipping articles and that's, the only thing she was doing so but I uh, yes I wrote the first script TV script at that job it was not a pilot you had to write a spec of an existing show at the time to get into the Warner Brothers workshop I don't know if that's still the case but I wrote a spec of The Office because this was 2006 I think so I don't know maybe The Office had been on for like one season but I wrote a spec of the office and as I felt like, Hey, I work in an office. (laughs) Do you remember what it was about? Um, yes, it was take your daughter to work day, (laughs) which I feel like, did they do that? Definitely. They definitely did that eventually, but I just want to say I did it before they did it. Uh, but it's so funny because if you ask any person with an office spec, like a hundred percent, whatever they wrote about the episode, exists now just because the show went on for so long and like how many office stories are there to tell but yeah it was take your daughter to work day and I think that um 
Michael Scott felt very left out because he didn't have a kid. So he was trying to adopt a child quickly, but not, not an actual adoption, but where you can like, if you pay 17 cents a day, you can pay for a meal for a child, like in another country. So he was trying to sign up for one of those things as proof that he had a kid. Does that sound good? I don't know. I got in. <laughs> it worked. But that job was cool. Well, the one thing that was cool about that job was they were down with me being an actor. Not that I was auditioning that much, but if I, I could say, like, oh, I got an audition, you know, at 11 o'clock. Is it cool if I leave and come back? And they were like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, they were almost like starstruck by it like nobody in the office you know they'd be like what did you have to do like what did you say and I'd be like uh ate an imaginary hamburger like ooh like they were very like like thought it was very fancy or something but it wasn't it was soul crushing um so then when I got in the Warner Brothers thing that was I want to say it was something that was during the day like every Wednesday during the day and I had to say, like, for the next six weeks, can I work from home on Wednesday so I can do this Warner Brothers thing? And they were so cool and said, yes, I could. And then when that um, program was over, I got staffed on a show, like, immediately and couldn't even give them, like, a full two weeks notice. And I was like, uh, I'm going to – I need to leave because next week I'm going to start working on this show. And they were like, what do you mean? Like, you're – on a show and I was like no I'm not on the show but I, I got hired to write on the show and they're like you're a right you're a tv right what like they were so confused because I had just been they knew me as a failed actor and they were like wait you're writing on a and I'd never even like I mean I was as stunned as they were I'd never <laughs> been on the set of anything in my life wow. like Whoa. I just was like where where what's happening wow. it was like winning a weird lottery yeah <laughs> What was the Warner Brothers workshop like? It's interesting because I've heard that it, the program has really changed over the years. So I feel like my description is probably not going to be applicable to what it is now. But in 2006, it was a, there was a comedy workshop and a drama workshop. And I was in the comedy workshop, but it was 10 writers. We met like every Wednesday for six or seven weeks. And we we went through sort of like the fake process of like pretending to pitch uh, episode ideas like to one of their executives. So I pitched like, here's my story ideas for you were going to, you were supposed to come out of the program with a spec. So it was like, here's my ideas for my, my name is Earl spec is the show that I did. So over the course of the six weeks, you would be writing this, this spec and they would give you notes and you would do kind of like pretend writer's rooms with the 10 people who are in there with everybody reading your script and giving like input. And the idea was that when it was over, they would send your finished spec that you did in the workshop to like all the Warner brother comedy showrunners because they timed it so that the workshop ended right as like staffing season was beginning and shows were getting picked up so we were done with the workshop in like april and it was like okay your script is now going out as a sample and then um so i got on this nbc show called 20 good years with john lithgow and jeffrey tambor and it was uh quickly canceled but we stayed in production for the whole, like, they had, like, an overseas order to make 13 episodes. So we stayed in production for the whole 13 episodes, and I sort of got my introduction into television and how that all works. And 
It was awesome. And then the workshop helped me get an agent too, which I don't know if they still do that. We don't, none of us have agents right now. <laughs> the writers. Right, right. <laughs> so you wrote your first draft of Unicorn Store in 2009. Can you tell us about the different steps in your journey to making Unicorn Store? Oh gosh. Okay. It's so, I'm probably going to forget some steps because it's been so long. It's like 10 years. Um, but yes, I know that I wrote, I was working on a TV show in New York for HBO called Bored to Death at the beginning of 2009. And I kind of had a lot of free time on that show. Like our, uh, pre-production was a very long period where we just didn't work very long hours. And I was like, I should be writing something while I'm here. And so I started to write Unicorn Store, finished it later that year. My agents kind of sent it around to different producers and it ended up at uh, Mike White's company, Mike White and Dave Bernad and Mike White, who's an awesome writer, director, and sometimes actor. And he suggest we were like developing the script. He was giving me notes, like working on it. And he suggested the script to the Sundance Writers Lab. So like, like, oh, you guys should read this and Samantha should go. And so I did. I went to Sundance for the Writers Lab in 2010. And that's cool because you're just getting like other professional screenwriters input on the script because this was still such an early draft. Though there was one guy that was like, does it need to be a unicorn? <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, it does, <laughs> sir, but it's good to be thought-provoking. Um, but no, it was, it was very valuable. They don't, you don't do any writing there. They only are, it's only discussion, asking questions, pushing you to think about things that you hadn't thought about before. So then just working on the script, coming out of that, very valuable, did lots of like little rewrites. I don't even know how many rewrites there were. I counted, but now I've forgotten the number. But it's something like 40-something drafts. I'm not sure. But we then, so Mike White and Dave Bernad, uh, we started looking for directors. And Mike White had worked with Miguel Arteta before. And so Miguel came on board as a director. And then we got some financing. And I was like, that's awesome. This is all happening. We started having like auditions for the main part. That was like, incredible. Like the people who came to read, like people you wouldn't think would agree to read were like, yes, we'll read. Like, I was like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and we ended up casting rebel Wilson <laughs> and which was, I, and I should say that that at the time was like a very, uh, somewhat different version of the script that existed then than exists now. Like the character was a little bit different. She had like never been in a relationship and never had a boyfriend. And that was a bigger issue in the movie. Like she had a lot of like self-esteem issues because she didn't have a boyfriend. And that's something that when Bree and I really moved away from when we when she came on board, um, so that was a version of the movie that we were trying to trying to get made, and we were we were we even had a start date. We were like months away from like the green light from its shooting, and um, other projects got in the way. Like I feel like she she went to go do Pitch Perfect two. 
something, there was some movie that she was going to do and it was like, okay, we'll wait, we'll wait a year until she's done with that. But then after that year, like Miguel was on another movie and it became kind of like a scheduling Mm. nightmare. (laughs) Not only nightmare for me, because in my mind I'd been waiting so long. Little did I know this was only 2012. (laughs) Uh, It had only been like three years or whatever. Um, But anyway, we all very amicably parted ways in a like, like, oh, you know, let's just go back to the drawing board, look for other directors. And um, at this point, Mike White had stepped away from the project to work on his own movies, but his partner, Dave Bernad, was still a producer. And Dave Bernad said, remembered that we had met with Brie Larson in the first round of auditions in 2012 and Dave and I had been crazy about her then and that was the first time I met her and her and I had this awesome lunch together where she ordered something super weird and I was like oh my god she's such a weirdo like in the best way like like that was my compliment like like oh my god you're so perfect for Kit you're so weird you're so awesome totally like delightful lovely person I always wanted her for the part. And so by the time we went back around to her, um, I want to see she'd already done Room. I, want, I don't remember if it had come out yet or not, but there was like a lot of buzz about it. And But also, more importantly, by that time, she had directed a couple shorts. And we thought they were great. And we were like, would she, she if she still likes the script years later, if she remembers it, would she be interested in directing it? And so Dave reached out to her and said, do you remember this movie from a few years ago, Unicorn Store? Would you be interested in directing it? And she said yes, like the next day, a day or two. Like it was super fast. And I was like, I cannot believe this is happening. This is amazing. Um, And so as soon as she was on board, we got new financing. And she was, I forget what she was shooting. She was shooting something, maybe the Kong movie whatever it was it was like she's in another country she's got the script we're just emailing back and forth like she's got notes she has thoughts we're working on them sending each other like pages and stuff back and forth back and forth and then she had like a window in her schedule like ooh, we can do this at the end of 2016 and it just happened like super quickly I think we asked her in 2015 and the end of 2016 we made the movie and it then came out in Toronto, the Toronto Film Festival, like a year, the next year, 2017. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, 2017. And then after Toronto, we knew very quickly after Toronto that Netflix was acquiring it, but we were not allowed to publicize that. Um, there's, st- you know, while they're still working on the deal, the deal took almost a year. So the movie didn't come out until this April. And that was like the hardest year of all time because there's like, like not that much internet chatter on a small indie film, but like the little chatter that there was, was like, what happened to this movie? Where did it go? Why did it disappear? You know, I guess no one wanted it. And the whole time I'm like, guys, Netflix is going to buy it. I just can't tell you. I swear to God, it's coming out. Like it was like Ah. killing me that we had to like not say anything for a year. 
Then it came out in April of this year on Netflix. <laughs> the end. <laughs> that's Yay. a long that's story, a good story. I feel like I probably messed up the timeline there, but that's what I remember. So the film premiered at TIFF in 2017, like you said. Can you tell us what that experience was like, having it premiere at the festival? Um, the most fun thing ever just because you heard my extremely long answer on the journey to get it made so the obviously I'd seen like some little screenings and we had done like a tiny little family and friends screening but the theater that we were at I want to say it was Ryerson University was a gigantic theater like a thousand seats so seeing being in the theater with a thousand seats was like, holy cow. Like, I just got chills. I was like, I can't believe it's happening. Like, a thousand people are laughing at that joke that I wrote. Like, that's amazing. And then it was so hard not to just be, like, looking around, just watching the people watch the movie. Um, and especially at the time, of course, I did not know that it would end up being a Netflix film. But looking back on it, so thankful that I went and had that experience because it did not have a theatrical release, but I feel like I got the best of both worlds <laughs> because I got to see it like in a theater, you know, with all of these people and have that sort of like, oh, my movie's on a big screen, fun feeling. But then also the fact that it was on Netflix, I know for a fact that more people around the world saw the movie than ever would have seen it if it had been like this art house release that, you know, showed for a few weeks and then went away. So I feel it was like the best. Plus I'd never been to Canada before the most delightful place. I mean, I'm already obsessed with Canadians. <laughs> like every TV writer that I've ever worked with who's Canadian is like the best, nicest, funniest. Like I just like don't understand how the whole country are the sweetest people in the world. So I was like, Toronto was like this super, like, clean, friendly, nice New York City. Like, I just was like in love with the whole town. But you know, I'm sure it was colored by the fact that <laughs> I was there for this really fun reason. And you know, the people who bought tickets to that or the, were the kind of people who were inclined to want to see that kind of movie. So of course, I was only hearing the nice comments and the nice nice people coming up to me <laughs> this is a side note but one of our favorite moments not well, just the whole the dynamic in the film is between uh joan cusack and bradley whitford oh, God. we just thought they were so hysterical we were like the crew Bree, the crew we were obsessed with them like like in video village they would just we would be watching the monitor and we're like we're just sharing looks with each other like like, you can't see my face, what am I got? But we're just like, our look is like, we're just like dying. Like, can you believe this? Like, what is happening? Like, because they would, especially like Brad, like really would go off on his own delightful <laughs> rant that was just like, I kept thinking like, I can't believe that I have you. Plus, you guys, I'm wearing a West Wing shirt right now. This is how huge a fan I am. And we were, we were down to the wire to find someone for Bree's dad. And um, my husband actually was like, what about Bradley Whitford? Because he had worked on with him on a TV show. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't even know. And then I said to Bree, like, what about Bradley Whitford? And then before I know it, it was Bradley Whitford. And I was 
just dying. Like I had to fully suppress my West Wing. Like I probably barely mentioned it one time. Like, oh hey, heard you were on West Wing. <laughs> heard you were on West Wing. Um, because he just was so delightful. And then Joan too was like the nicest person. Like one time she saw me in line for like the bathroom and was like, just come into my trailer and use my bathroom. But I was like, what? I can't use Joan Cusack's bathroom in your own personal trailer. And she's like, come in. Um, but she said they were so happy to be there. Like this was a very low budget thing that we did in 25 days and she doesn't live here. She came from Chicago, I think. So she's coming from out of town to do this thing and just said the sweetest, nicest stuff about the script and like, so delightful even to this day i'm just constantly i'm like trying to generate movie ideas and tv ideas around the two of them oh please i mean all i and i uh i jokingly said to brad to brad like i i can we do a tv show together and he was like he's like if it's a tv show in town i'm in because like every that's all any actor cares about is like can i get a show that shoots in la you know but he's, uh, I guess he's doing that NBC, he's doing an NBC sitcom now. I mean, obviously he's doing The Handmaid's Tale, in which he is so incredible. I can't even believe it. I hope he wins all the Emmys. But then he's doing this like half hour sitcom on NBC called Perfect Harmony, where he's like a choir director. Yes. Oh, yes. It's I not out yet, though. The oh, trailer for it. No, okay. it's not out yet. Okay. Okay. It looks. Um, but I was. I remember funny. thinking, like, "Ooh, you got your sh- sitcom in town. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you wanted." Yeah. We we died the whole yeah. time. They died. would just died. start like before we like full two minutes before we we're even rolling. Like they they would just putter around in the kitchen like in character. <laughs> you know, like opening. We're in someone's real house, right? Like they're just opening drawers and being like, "Have you? Uh, did you get that yogurt I asked for?" <laughs> like just home life like they just would start like the husband wife home life like chit chat like way before we were rolling and then we would like Bree would cut and they would just keep going like they just were doing it constantly I just want to live in that I do too like they had such good chemistry with they each were other it was amazing they need, well, they need to be together and yeah, something they else really do. serious podcast Ooh. question okay <laughs> um so yeah can you tell us a little bit more about the collaboration between you and brie larson who directed and starred in unicorn store um it was truly delightful every step of the way um it's funny she i feel like she had the same level of enthusiasm about the script as I did. Oh, wow. That's all you can really (laughs) ever wish for. Yeah, like, I feel like that was everything, just to know that she loved it from the beginning, but that also, like, wanted to make it, you know, better and wanted to make it her own and brought, honestly brought so many things to the table that even I hadn't thought of and... Um, visually, like the way the, I feel like the first time she showed me like this, like mood board that she'd done for the movie, I just was like, oh my God, like the way she wanted Kit to look like I, some of that was stuff that I hadn't visualized. There's stuff in the script that I had visualized, um, that ended up looking very different. And then there's stuff that was like, oh, that's uh, not only did I not think of that, but I wish I had, cause that looks so cool, you know? So, um, I just was so impressed with her. I feel like she was super, super prepared. Um, 
Honestly, I'm like, I'm so much older than her, but she has been on sets and worked in the business longer than I have because <laughs> she started when she was six or seven. So even though this was her first time directing, it was like she was so comfortable on set, super comfortable with asking questions when, if there was, you know, getting people's opinion, so collaborative. It was, I'd heard so many, coming from TV and being on TV sets, I'd heard so many like nightmare stories about film sets, especially in regards to the writer, because like, you know, they don't really even want you there. A lot of times they don't even like need you there or want you there. And I was so welcomed. Like I was on set every day for the 25 days and I felt like so included. And, but I feel like everyone on the set felt included and people kept commenting the other like people on the crew would be commenting about how like this is such a warm set this is such a friendly set like almost like they were surprised and in my mind I was like oh is it normally not like this <laughs> are usually people like monsters I don't know like um so it was I think I was spoiled in that way because now like movie wise that's the only experience I want to have like I'm just I like just want to do a smaller sized film where like everyone is there because they want to be there and everyone is so friendly and lovely and um I just loved her and I think that she did an awesome job and I'm so proud of her and and it was it was fun to go to work every day and we were shooting through the 2016 election we were on set the night of the election which was emotional and traumatic for a lot of people <laughs> at work and it's so funny I really now I really associate the movie like with that time we had a lot of women on set we took this like incredible like all like female crew like it wasn't an all-female crew but I mean all of the women that were in the crew we took like this picture like that morning like today's the day get ready first female president you know and then the next day on set with was like everyone was crying. <laughs> mm. So it was like um, like a powerful emotional time. What was it like writing a coming of age story where you might have revisited aspects of your own life for inspiration while raising your young daughter? Hmm, that's interesting because when I wrote the first draft I did not have a child. <laughs> Um, she was born in 2010, so definitely the first draft or like the impetus for the whole movie, I guess, was just me <laughs> not thinking about a kid. And, um, it's funny when I first started dating my husband, I had a lot of like Hello Kitty stuff in my house, not spread around like a crazy person, but like, you know, a corner <laughs> where there's like a lot of Hello Kitty stuff on like one shelf, you know, but like he jokingly said that I had the aesthetic of a seven-year-old girl and I was like, yeah, I guess I kind of do, but like I had, you know, as an adult had like pink walls and I decorated cereal boxes with glitter and painted them up, put them on my wall as artwork. And, um, so it's funny. I didn't think of the movie at the time as that related to childhood because it felt like, Oh, these are, these are, these are things I'm feeling as an adult. Like I'm writing an adult movie about unicorns, you know, like that was definitely my thought. 
Um, but it's been neat working on the movie and trying to get it made along with the aging of my child. It's like she's she's nine, so she's like the same age as the mo- as you know the script, I guess. Um, it has been interesting to like look at her and think, I don't want the world to like crush any creative dreams or aspirations that you have. Like I want to create like the childhood that you, so that you feel like every creative whim you have is something to be explored and cherished and that you're not going to be judged. And it's so funny. I, I feel like I have to point out that this, that the kits, journey is like not autobiographical in any way like my parents when I was like I'm not going to be a doctor I'm going to be an actor like they were like go for it so it definitely never came from a place of my family feeling like they were crushing my dreams it was more like um like society you know just feelings I would put on myself like even now like I'm I feel like I get notes about stuff sounding too like youthful or childish Um, and a lot of that's in the movie you know like the feedback that she gets on her presentation and the people saying like I don't know it's just like rainbows I'm not really into it and stuff and I'm like well I'm like a grown woman with a child and I'm into it like I'm into the rainbows so I don't know why we think that's like a seven-year-old thing like Mm -hmm. all kinds of people are into all kinds of things so um I guess I just look at my kid and and think like I don't want you to ever feel as sad as Kit feels. <laughs> How do you stay creatively inspired between projects and during projects? Um I would say jealousy <laughs> of other people's incredible pro- uh, projects. Like the most motivating thing for me is if I'm watching something like um I'm watching that HBO show Succession right now. Oh, we're obsessed. So good. I mean, I can't Uh, even with the show. I could like talk about it for an hour, but like that's the kind of thing. Like when the episode is over, I want to rip out my laptop and like open Final Draft and just be like, okay, like I need to write something like that or like like Fleabag. Yeah. You know, I think to myself like, oh, it's not like. I don't think it's destructive jealousy, but it's like, oh, I want to do something as special as that. Or I, I feel like I feel reinvigorated and remotivated when I see like incredible movies and TV, which there's so much of in such a great way. Mm-hmm. So I'm just constantly like, oh, I want to write something as different as that or as cool as that. Or, yeah, I just feel like very inspired by the good stuff that's out there. I like that motivational jealousy. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. (laughs) What is your dream project to work on? Star Trek. (laughs) I um, was obsessed with Star Trek as a child. I mean, I might still be. I'm not sure. But I love, like, um, I love the J.J. Abrams reboot. And I feel like those are maybe going away. I read something about that. I'm not even sure. But I would work on any Star Trek-related thing just anything I think TV show movie I love um it's so funny there's like uh, you know there's a very much a Star Wars Star Trek versus one versus the other camp and to me I've always loved Star Trek a little bit more because it's a little funnier 
and maybe that's because I have a comedy writing background, but I'm just like the, the idea that it's like a, a mixing of genres that it's like sci-fi and there's action, but that it's funny is like, that's a hundred percent what I want to write. And I, that's not the kind of thing that I'm probably going to be sent either. Like people are not going to go, Oh, you wrote unicorn store here, Star Trek. Um, so like with Unicorn Store, that was just a spec I wrote on my own. Uh, I want my, my next, the spec I'm working on now is a, is a sci-fi thing. Because no one's going to give me that job, so I have to just prove that I can do it. Awesome. I like that. Yeah. On that note, we end with our rapid response segment, 3, 2, 1, action. How rapid? Basically, it's just like you can answer in a word or phrase. You can take the time to okay. think about it, though, yeah. if you need okay. to. Yeah. Yeah. We start with three. Your favorite or most influential film? The Princess Bride. <laughs> I feel like that's not a creative answer, but it is my real, actual real answer. Oh, we and want it that. is for it is no for a similar reason that I mentioned Star Trek is I feel like it is a blending of different genres. And when I saw it as a kid, I didn't know anything about the movie before seeing it. And you start watching it, and you don't know. You're like, oh, is this just a romantic love story? Mm-hmm. Oh no, this is like a a period piece is this like a like a you know draw love drama action and then it then there's just like weird magical stuff so that's funny yes and it's super funny so i like that i like that it's a bunch of different genres and you can't quite put it is and you know what you can't replicate it you can't be like i'm gonna do another thing that's like the princess bride it's like so original Mm -hmm. you can you can never do it again two dream person you want to work with phoebe waller bridge (laughs) phoebe if you're out there listening to this podcast we hope so (laughs) just call me you know i'll do anything i am a professional writer but i'm willing to be like i don't know the writer's pa or (laughs) i'll just like i think she's incredible obviously like she's i love that she's an actor and i love that she's a writer Actor writers are my favorite people in the world, um, and I think she's incredible, and I love her in a platonic, <laughs> respectful <laughs> way. But Phoebe, call me. <laughs> uh, one best advice you've ever received. Okay, all right. Here's the here's the advice: when you're working with a difficult personality, tell yourself that that person was kicked in the head by a horse (laughs) okay this really works okay so like this this is joint advice that was created between me and another television writer on a show where there was a writer who was like getting under our skin a little bit in a way and my friend made a joke that this maybe this person had been kicked in the head by a horse and I said you know what that helps me (laughs) because now I feel like I can't be mad at that person when they go off on something. Like, they are, he's doing his best. Like, he might have brain damage. He could have, like, there's stuff going on that we don't know about. And that makes me feel, like, more, like, empathetic. And so I truly do that to this day. Like, if there's someone, not, not just in the workplace, but just <laughs> even in line behind, like, a crazy woman at Target who can't find her coupons, I just think, oh, my God, that poor lady was kicked in the head by a horse. And look how well she's doing. She's out in the world. Like, 
It just like calms me down every time. Oh my god. I don't know if it works for road rage. Because I feel like if you were kicked in the head by a horse, you probably shouldn't be shouldn't driving. Be driving. Shouldn't, shouldn't be, be driving. driving. Get off the road. But, like, in the workplace, it works oh, every man. time. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was good. And <laughs> action. What are you most looking forward to right now? Um, do you mean, like, in my life? or just, Yeah, in general. Just in general. Looking forward. Um... I guess I'll give a nerdy work answer, which is um, I'm working on this NBC show right now that's a musical, which is like, I'm so excited about it. Like, I'm in love with the people I work with. I'm in love with the project. And there's like musical numbers with dancing and uh, Mandy Moore is the choreographer. And I'm like obsessed with her from So You Think You Can Dance days and other things that she's done. And so... Um, I the show's gonna come out. It's called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. It comes out in February on NBC, and I think it's like the uh, the sweetest like show. And I feel like it's one of those things that's gonna like put put good things into the world, not dark, awful things into the world. And so I'm excited about the show and for people to see it. I'm not the creator of the show. I'm just okay. like writing on the show. And where can people follow you on social media? Oh, okay. I am on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Samantha Robot, but I'm hardly on Twitter at all. I will check in every now and then, but I find Twitter to be such a dark, dark place that I don't go on there very much, but I'm on my Instagram quite a bit, perhaps too much. But, yeah. Amazing. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This was so fun. You can find us at afemalelens.com and at afemalelens on Instagram and Twitter. You can email us at afemalelens at gmail.com. And you can download the show anywhere you listen to podcasts and on Apple Podcasts, where we'd love it if you left us a review. Our theme song was composed by Jesse Nelson. Our logos were created by Megan Cafferty. Elise Welch is our associate producer. And A Female Lens was created by Jennifer Zollett and Larkin Bell.